Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment, tax, or legal advice, or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Let's get started, guys. Tomorrow, by the way, as a public service announcement, is election day, the midterm elections. Uh, I, I don't know of any other time in history where more is riding on the midterms of 2022. Man, and it is hotly debated. There is a lot going on there. Um, so get out and vote. Exercise your right to uh, to be able to talk about uh, who you're voting for and what you're about, what you represent. I don't think uh, we take it um, seriously enough. Uh, so get out there and do that. Tomorrow, we'll be tracking the results and it should, the results should set the tone for the remainder of the year and looking out into the future over the next several years, all the way up to um, the 2024 presidential election. Hopefully, sentiment will change, inflation will come down, and our economy will once again be back on the right track. Um, I would love for somebody to be fiscally conservative and actually state that they would balance a budget or at least attempt to do that by a certain period of time because we're on an unsustainable path of the debt that we have taken on, um, especially coming out of the uh, global pandemic in 2020. So here we go. Hawkish comments by Fed Chair Jerome Powell again. Following the announcement of another 75 basis point interest rate hike last week, cast a pall over financial markets, sending yields higher and stocks lower. The Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 1.40%, while the S&P 500 declined 3.35%. The NASDAQ Composite Index lost 5.65% for the week. The MSCI EFA Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, fell 1.04%. So what does this mean? The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at 32,403. That's year-to-date down 10.83%. The NASDAQ uh, closed at 10,475, which year-to-date is down 33.04%. MSCI EFA Index closed at 1,730, which closed... Uh, it is down for the year at 25.991%. MSCI EFA index closed at 1,730, which is down 25.91%. S&P 500 closed at 3,770. That's down 20.89%. The 10-year treasury note closed at 4.17%. That's up 16 basis points for the week. Year to date, that's 2.65% to the upside. So again, going back to Powell... Jay Powell, um, and all the Fed heads that like to talk uh, way too much, by the way, in my opinion, they need to back off and not be talking as much. Uh, they never used to, and now it's like some something they've got to do or something they feel like they've got to do. Uh, to me, it's ridiculous. Um, the official statement released following the FOMC meeting appeared to suggest a potential for future easing of interest rates 
Investors cheered the news, sending stocks higher, but the optimism was crushed 30 minutes later on hawkish comments by Fed Chair Powell during his post-meeting press conference. Losses accelerated into Thursday, led by technology names, uh, so mega cap tech, which were under pressure due to rising bond yields. The yield on the two-year treasury note rose to its highest level since 2007, and I've been talking about this over the last a few weeks. The sentiment took damage from workforce reduction or freezes, uh, news from multiple technology companies. Some considered it a sign of a pending recession. Even today, um, you're seeing a lot of tech firms come out with uh, potential layoffs or layoffs at some point here in the near future. Stocks managed to erase some of the week's losses on Friday following a strong employment report and a drop in the U.S. dollar. From Dove to Hawk in 30 minutes. In a recap, in the statement accompanying the 75 basis point rate increase, the FOMC said in future increases, uh, would consider the cumulative monetary tightening to date and the lag and impact such tightening involves. But in his post-meeting press conference, Fed Chair Powell struck a more hawkish tone. He said that current inflation data did not support any slowdown in the rate increases and that the terminal rate, the point at which the rates will no longer rise, may be higher than initially expected. This week, key economic data, consumer price index, jobless claims on Thursday, consumer sentiment comes out on Friday. So we'll be tracking that for you and managing portfolios accordingly. Um, this week, companies reporting earnings, not a lot going on. Tuesday, uh, the Walt Disney Company. Wednesday, Roblox, uh, Occidental Petroleum. Thursday, Becton, Dixon & Company, so BDX. And uh, this week's tax tip, learn about ABLE accounts. People with disabilities can use achieving a better life experience or ABLE account to help pay qualified disability related expenses. Here are some things to know about ABLE accounts. Number one, this tax advantage savings account doesn't affect their eligibility for government assistance programs. Number two, the 2022 annual contribution limit is $16,000. Number three, ABLE account designated beneficiaries may be eligible to claim the savers credit for a percentage of their contributions. Number four, Eligible beneficiaries must be 18 years old at the close of the taxable year, are not dependent or full-time students, and meet the income requirements. Number five, families may roll over funds from a 529 plan to another family member's ABLE account. And number six, disability-related expenses include housing, education, transportation, health, prevention, and wellness, employment, training, and support, assistive technology, and personal support services. And again, this information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional. And this tip was adapted from irs.gov. For those of you who are private equity investors, venture capital investors, maybe with some private investments out there, the private markets, um, haven't gotten as much attention, I guess, in the public eye, maybe if you're watching the financial media and know what they're talking about. 
most everybody is focused on the secondary market, which is um, what you see trading in the mar uh, indexes. So like the S&P 500 or the Dow or the NASDAQ and stocks that you trade on the exchanges. Well, there's a whole nother primary market that's the private market where there's a lot of private investments. Usually it's reserved for accredited investors, qualified investors who invest in businesses or it pool their money together to go and buy shares of privately held companies or directly investing in those companies. Um, but uh, I feel like it's a underplayed story. The valuations in the private markets um, aren't as transparent. So you don't get these like minute to minute updates as to what the stock price is of a company that you own privately. Um, you get those maybe on a quarterly, semi-annual, annual basis. And, and so you're not really seeing, you know, what the valuations are if you are paying attention to the, you know, the indexes, what's trading on the exchanges. So it's a math, the private markets are a massive market. Um, three trillion, it's, it's huge. And there's a lot going on inside the private markets. And so I pay attention to this closely um, as I feel like the, those valuations haven't been marked down yet. Um, the secondary market that we all trade in is down year to date, but then the private market valuations are, are slower to report or come in, um, especially when there's a lot of variability that goes into what those valuations looks like from a debt perspective for some of those companies trying to raise money or capital raises and things like that. So I just don't think that they've been marked down. And there's some evidence here that uh, the private markets are slowing down. The Fed's raising interest rates. The secondary market that we all tend to pay attention to has come down. So it would just make sense that the private markets are also going to be marked down as capital and liquidity potentially changes for those companies trying to raise money in their new rounds um, uh, from seed rounds and, and other types of rounds, uh, late stage rounds and things like that. So um, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, for example, the private markets is where Elon Musk took Twitter just this past week. So it was a publicly traded company. Now it's not. It's a private company now, and they and there's less transparency into seeing what's going on. Um, so, uh, with without further ado, I just want to kind of read a J.P. Morgan note that I saw here on the venture capital private equity space. With the Fed moving in very in a very short time frame from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. A rug pull on risk asset valuations is driving a classic correction in private markets. To this end, with the public market comps for startup companies plunging, think like ARK Innovation ETF is down 64% year to date. That's through the end of the third quarter. Although startups need to raise additional capital at the moment, they're not happy with valuations being presented to them. And as a result, the pace of investment by uh, venture capitalists into startups has slowed considerably. To this end, uh, third quarter 2022 U.S. venture capital investment of $43 billion represented a 40% quarter-over-quarter decline, which followed two consecutive quarterly declines in each of the, uh, in, as, a, as a negative 10% and in a negative 15% range. We would also note that $43 billion of VC investments 
investment represent the lowest quarterly total since the second quarter of 2020. As the valuations for early stage comps continue to decline, however, VCs, which are venture capitalists, are readying to pounce. In fact, while the pace of deal activity has declined sharply through 2022, what is ramping is the pace of fundraising by VCs. Specifically, VCs raised another $29 billion during the third quarter of 2022, which contributes to the $151 billion already raised thus far in 2022. To put this in perspective, the capital raised year-to-date from VCs is already above the peak of $147 billion raised in 2021. It is on track to be more than three times the level raised in pre-pandemic period with 72 billion raised in 2019. That's unbelievable. There's a lot of cash in the system that's out there in the private markets. Underlying robust capital raising for VCs is a belief that with the valuations of private companies under significant pressure that the 2023 vintage for venture investments could be the most attractive since 2009. Yikes. That means valuations are going down and uh, the big money, the billionaires out there are excited to jump all over these companies that are private so they can get more shares at a lower price point. While the exit markets, which is an exit market is when they go public or they, they have a liquidity event to sell the company or do whatever, uh, remain disrupted only with 25 IPOs pricing uh, in the third quarter of 2022 compared to about 100 per quarter prior to the slowdown, which is massive. Over time, as startups increasingly run out of money, the dam will eventually break and the pace of investment into private companies will again resume. To this end, while we are still far from the point of capitulation, we have started to see a slight uptick in down rounds being accepted with 8% of completed deals in the third quarter of 2022 being down rounds up from 4% in the second quarter of 2022. With the pace of down rounds likely to grow in coming quarters, a record $3 trillion of dry powder remains on the sidelines from venture capital and private equity. <clears throat> demonstrating a growing appetite to put this war chest of dry powder to work. Private equity funds remain active in the M&A arena with M&A deal volumes remaining strong at 200 billion plus for a third consecutive quarter while also increasing throughout each month in uh, the third quarter of 2022. Isn't that fascinating? So down rounds are where the valuations of, uh, of a, uh, of a startup, if you will, uh, that's raising capital. The uh, down round means that the valuation previously was higher, so it's cheaper to buy it now. So that's why uh, a lot of dry powder is sitting inside the private markets from uh, very wealthy individuals, family offices, private equity firms, hedge funds, stuff like that. And they're going to be trying to gobble up high quality, high value names that they feel like they're going to make uh, a lot of money on in a, in a five to seven to 10 year period, or at some point an exit, uh, private sale or IPO, something like that down the road. So um, it's uh, kind of a 
an interesting dynamic when you have the public markets that most most everybody else trades in, and then you've got the private markets that are they're reserved for accredited and qualified investors, and and oftentimes people with a lot of uh, power and money uh, to be um, uh, investing in in startup companies. So uh, I'll kind of keep tracking this. I've I've read a note that's even more recent than this. This one was for the third quarter, the end of the third quarter. But I've get weekly reports on how the private equity markets and venture capital markets are doing, and um, it's very interesting to track because it does affect uh, the the secondary market, which is the public markets that we see. Anyway, there you go. On to the next thing. <laughs> Check this out. I saw an article today in in the Daily Upside, Brookshire energy firms reap rewards of low oil production. At least big oil is making the sage of Omaha look smart. That would be Warren Buffett. Despite falling well short of start of the year production goals, oil and gas companies are posting financial results far beyond any reasonable expectations this year. The massive profits were enough to help Warren Buffett's Brookshire Hathaway, which owns a major stake in Occidental Petroleum, weather an otherwise ugly year cry and demand oil companies have finally learned how to refrain from overkill after years and years of drill baby drill mentalities firms are opting now to chill baby chill and collect massive profits from raised prices amid high demand for oil and gas despite the increased demand for fossil fuels u.s frackers and shale companies have kept oil production roughly flat this year the unsurprising result rollicking profits for energy companies in the latest quarter. Last week, Exxon uh, reported a record $20 billion in quarterly profits, nearly matching Apple's numbers, while Chevron posted over $11 billion, good for its second highest quarter ever. ConocoPhillips reported $4.5 billion in profits in the latest quarter, nearly doubling its results from the same period last year. Brookshire... Uh, Hathaway reported a nearly $2.7 billion net loss in its Saturday's earnings call, down from a profit of over $10 billion last year thanks to this year's volatile market conditions. But its massive stake in Occidental and Chevron buoyed the company from sinking any further, with the former seeing its share price double this year, even as the rest of the S&P 500 has plummeted over 20%. All told, Oil production in the U.S. has increased only around 3% from December through August this year, according to the Energy Information Administration, even as benchmark Brent crude oil prices have increased nearly 30% year to date. Boy, aren't we feeling that. Uh, that's good news for big oil, but a gut punch for commuters everywhere. And that's what we're talking about right now. So, um Anyway, uh, we'll see if the geopolitics and politics in the U.S. Uh, change that sentiment. We'll see how that goes in the coming uh, couple of years. But I have a feeling that energy prices and oil prices are here to stay, and they're going to probably stay up above 60 bucks uh, going forward. That means $60 uh, per barrel, West Texas Intermediate. This week's technical analysis spotlight, I just want to point out a few things. If, if you guys out there want to pull up a chart of the S&P 500, which is dollar sign SPX uh, on most systems, you'll be able to 
pull up a chart of it, put in the 50 day moving average and the 200 day moving average. Um, you could even pull up an SPY chart too and, and kind of do the math to flip it over from the index to the S&P 500 uh, index that trades on the exchanges of SPY ticker symbol. Um, but what you do is you take a quick look at uh, the relative strength of the of the index, you put a candlestick chart up there and you'll see snap a couple of trend lines, top and bottom. Uh, we're in definitely a downtrend still. And uh, let's see, there's a couple things I want to point out. So uh, we're just paying attention to uh, the level on the S&P 500 of 3505, which is a 50% uh, retracement from the March lows of 2020. So um, basically, we're going to see, uh, look at the highs around what, 4,800 or so, and then bring that down uh, to see a 50% retrace. I, I have a feeling that, you know, we could potentially go down there. Right now, we're trading at like 3777. Um, so we've kind of had a, a nice impulse. We've had a down week last week again, uh, after a little bit of a bull market rally within a bear market. <laughs> uh, very confusing for most people. Uh, but uh, I think overhead resistance is 3,900 on the S&P, and then we'll probably trade down. Um, if we, I, I think the furthest we might trade down is, Somewhere at the 3394 level, um, which would be the February 2020 uh, bull cycle peak. So what that means is in 2020, before we had a 35% decline, um, starting in February, we were at 3394. So I think that, you know, if we have further downside, we might get to that target, but I don't think that's the case. There's actually uh, the alternative case, which is um, we might get a squeeze here, uh, depending on how politics go tomorrow in the election, we might get a move up higher to uh, levels that are again, flirting that 3,900 to 4,000, 4,100 confluence level up as overhead resistance uh, before we get a, a, a sell-off. Because right now, the reason why I mentioned to pull up an RSI uh, down below, another study down below the main chart would be because you have bullish momentum divergence, so positive divergence happening. And that bottom happened on October um, 11th, where uh, you've we got an indication uh, that the bearish seasonal period ended and then bullish momentum diverged and you've got uh, positive divergence going on. And so that particular momentum indicator is showing that we'll probably get a bit of a seasonal rally. Uh, but uh, but there's always risks to that thesis. And the, the risks are um, right now political and then uh, with the elections and then you've got Jay Powell and his hawkishness, as well as some other anomaly we don't know or really 
can model out accurately at a, with a high level of probability, something that we don't know that might happen that might divert or uh, change the way that the markets are trading. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the rundown of where I think we're at right now. Um, we're at the currently around that 38.2% retracement level. We could trade and oscillate between the 36.49 and 37.47 areas, which is kind of oscillating between the 38.2% retrace and the 61.8% retrace. Um, but the 50% retrace of the March 2020 low is 35.05. And um, yeah, we could see... You can see that happen. Um, it's pretty volatile. There's a lot going on. The 200-day moving average is sitting up like at, oh, 4,100, uh, 4,025, 4,100, somewhere between uh, those levels as it's trending down week to week to week. So anyway, enjoy trading. Until next time, I'll talk to you guys next week. If you have any questions, please reach out to Northbound Wealth Management. My name is Brent Foster, your podcast host. Thanks so much.